morning, if you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. That's where we'll begin our time of study this morning, Acts chapter 2. It is good to see you, as has been mentioned several times, we have a number of visitors. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, We're glad to see you, glad to get to know you, and if there is anything that we can do, something that brought you in this morning, or some need that you have, something you'd like to talk to us about, we'd be more than happy to help you in any way that we can. But most of all, we're just thankful that you've chosen to be here with us. It's an encouragement to us. Acts chapter 2, I want to read in verse 37 to begin. Acts 2 and verse 37, the text says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? These people had heard Peter speak about Jesus and how they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. The text says they were cut to the heart and they ask a question, what shall we do? They know that they have done wrong. They know that they have been on the wrong page with God and they want to get on the right page again. How do I get right with God? What shall we do? We have been revisiting the foundations this year. All year we've been going back to basics and restudying first principles concepts. We spent the first part of the year talking about Jesus, and Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion, Jesus' miracles. We spent a section, really through the summer, talking about the Bible and different translations and presumed errors and contradictions in the Bible and about the canon of the Bible. And we're going to shift our focus for the rest of the year to what we're going to call Christian responses. That is, based on what we know, what is it that we are intended to do? And that there are some first principles ideas that need to be explored. So when we understand what God has done for us, what is required from us? And so this morning we're going to come to one of the most basic questions, which is, what shall we do? What does it take to be a Christian? That's really the whole plan this morning, is just to explore and answer that question asked so many years ago by the people on Pentecost. Now it's an interesting question. Because it seems to me that it has become a strange kind of battleground for many Christians and many groups claiming to follow Jesus. It's strange because the actual requirements of what we do to be a Christian are fairly simple and straightforward. The heart is the real battle. So, for example, in this text, the battle is not what happens in verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. The real battle is in verse 37 where it says they were cut to the heart. They are so convicted that they reach a point where they're ready to do whatever God says. That's the real struggle. And yet it is something that we do need to talk about. We do need to know what God expects those of us who want to respond to him to do. We need to know how we get to be right with God and accept what Jesus has done for us that we've been singing about, that we've been celebrating in the Lord's Supper, that's been the theme of our worship all morning. So what shall we do? First, We need to clear the ground a little bit. If we're going to talk about the gospel, I I feel I would be remiss if I did not say that the gospel starts with God. It does not start with anything that we do. It starts with God who, in his mercy, from before the foundation of the world, as our brother has read for us this morning, God began to plan for the crisis that man would create with his sin. Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and even as God curses the earth and them for their sin, God also says, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, he says there will be victory where there is defeat now. And so God plans. And the story of the Old Testament, the larger narrative is how God begins to crystallize these expectations and prophecies into a single figure who is known as the Messiah. And I am going to put on the board a number of passages. If you are, are, can't follow along with this, just take the passages down. You can study them at your own leisure. But these are some of the things said in the Old Testament about a coming one who is going to fulfill the expectation God has to bless and save his people. This is Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I've tried to underline as we go through these passages some of the things I want you to notice. Particularly that this figure is going to have government. He is going to have peace. He's going to be on the throne of David. He will be called Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. This is the Messiah who is to come. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Isaiah 61, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. In Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Whew. A lot of reading. Great expectations for the Messiah, but also whispers, indications that this Messiah who is going to come and be great and be a ruler and who will bless the people of God and they will dwell securely and he will take care of his flock, that that Messiah is also going to suffer. This is Isaiah chapter 53. The, the song we sang, highly exalted, is, is basically Isaiah 53 put to music. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him with the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See the suffering that is indicated here. Psalm 22 is another you can put right next to it that describes the suffering that is later applied to the Messiah. That was poorly understood, though, in the time when Jesus came. And so all of these passages are settled for several centuries as part of the Old Testament in the time when Jesus comes. And there are many would-be Messiahs throughout those years, and yet... The expectations that God laid down have never been fulfilled until Jesus comes. And not only does he become that figure, the Messiah, but he also suffers the way God said the Messiah would suffer. That is the background of Acts chapter 2. 
God has finally acted and has brought about everything He promised for so long. And so in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends and the apostles begin to speak in other languages, that is what Peter says is happening. Look in Acts 2 and verse 17. You've got your Bible open to Acts chapter 2. Look in Acts 2 and verse 17. He says, In these last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter says God is acting in this very moment to fulfill his promises. He is now pouring out his spirit. And that indicates, verse 21, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is now available through the Messiah. But there is a problem. Verse 22. Verse 22 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God sent him. God attested to him. God knew beforehand and planned. You crucified, and then God raised him up. Do you notice the problem here? God is at work doing everything to fulfill his plan that for centuries has been planned, and you killed him. The Messiah came, and you're guilty of his blood. And so he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Everything that's going on on the day of Pentecost, all the speaking in tongues, everything, He says, that is an indication that Jesus has been highly exalted as we have sung, that Jesus now reigns. He is Messiah. And so in Acts 2.36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. He has made him Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, ruler of all things, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, Jesus says. And he has made him Christ or Messiah. He has made him the figure that God for so long has promised to save his people. And the problem is, you crucified him. You're on the wrong side of God. On this one. And now, Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So, now we're ready to answer this question, aren't we? Now that we have that background, we can know, well, what is it that we do to respond to all that God has done for us when we discover we are on the wrong side of God? The first thing that we need to say in answer to this question that we're expected to do to be saved, is that we need to believe in Jesus as God's Messiah. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Acts 2, 38, Peter answered them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't even mention the idea of believing or faith in this text, but we know it is understood because after these people do repent and are baptized, they are called believers. That's what they're called. Look down a little bit in verse 44 of Acts 2. Acts 2 and verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
Or turn the page to Acts 4 and verse 4. Acts 4 and verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And drop down in Acts 4 and verse 32. Acts 4 and verse 32, And the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So faith, then, is an essential part of the response God wants from me and from you, that we believe in Jesus as God's Messiah. And what I want to do for a moment this morning is unpack that a little bit. What does it mean to believe in Jesus as God's Messiah? The first thing I would say about that is believing has to do with the identity of Jesus. Who do we believe Jesus to be? What do we say about him? Who do we think he is? Go with me to the book of John, John chapter 7. I want to show you how this is an integral part of how we understand the Gospels. In John chapter 7, when you look through the Gospels, you have all of these people asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy who's coming and he's presuming to do miracles? He sometimes works on the Sabbath. He is teaching. He is making some claims about himself and his origin. But what do we think about him? John chapter 7 and verse 11. John 7 and verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Drop down to John 7 and verse 40. John 7 and verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. I want you to notice the variety of explanations for Jesus in this text. Some people are saying, well, he's a good man. Is he the prophet? Is he the Christ? Where does he come from? He can't be. He needs to be arrested. No, he's deceiving the people. And people are on all sides of this question about who Jesus is. You remember when Jesus asked the apostles that? On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Notice their kind of wacky answers. They say people are saying about you that you're John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the old prophets who's kind of come back to life somehow. But then Jesus asked the question, and this is the question of faith that you and I must answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with, you are the Christ. So if we're going to say that believing in Jesus as God's Messiah or Christ is one of the things that is essential to our salvation, then we have to say that it has something to do with the identity of Jesus, who we say that he is. Like the disciples, we have to come to the conclusion that we believe Jesus really is the Savior God had promised from so long ago. But there's more to faith than that. Faith certainly is a mental assent to the idea that I think Jesus is a certain person. But there is more to faith than that. So I would say secondly, under faith, that believing has to do with trusting Jesus. That when we believe certain things about the identity of Jesus, that has to do with how faithful and trustworthy we think he is. Can I trust him? So it's not just, is he this? But what is that going to mean for me as I engage with him, if he is truly God's Messiah. I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4. See a couple of places where trust kind of is more clearly the issue when it comes to faith. 
Mark chapter 4. This is the scene where the disciples are with Jesus in the boat. And there comes a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are afraid they're going to die. So they wake Jesus up and they're panicked. Don't you care that we're perishing? And in Mark 4 and verse 40, after Jesus calms the storm, peace be still, Mark 4 and 40, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want you to notice that Jesus says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That faith and fear Jesus puts at odds. Because what Jesus is saying is, if you believe in me, you're not going to be afraid. You will trust me. That you don't know exactly how I'm going to work my way out of this situation and help you, but you trust me. And it says in verse 41, they begin to ask, who is he? You notice how identity and trust go hand in hand. That if I believe Jesus really is in connection with God then I can trust him to take care of me. I can trust him to respond to the crises of my life. Turn the page to Mark 5. In Mark 5, you have a similar scene, verse 35. This is a man whose daughter is sick, and he comes to approach Jesus about him coming to heal her. They're delayed along the way. In Mark 5, 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some, some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Again, faith is juxtaposed with fear. This is about trust. Trust me, he says. Don't be afraid. Just trust me. I'll take care of it. So you see, he wants him to believe, but he doesn't just say, don't fear. I'm the Messiah. It's don't fear. Believe. Believe in me. Believe that I'm going to take care of this. Believe that I have the power and the will to do it. There is trust involved here. There's also trust in a passage like this. This is John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Do you notice what he does there? He says, I, I know you already believe in God. Now believe in me too. Trust me that what I'm telling you is true. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Trust me about this. In John 20 and verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I want to emphasize that last part of this verse, life in his name versus life in my own name. You see, without Jesus, we can just say, you know, I only have hope of eternal life because of how good I am. That I'm good enough to go before God and say, I deserve eternal life. But when I trust Jesus and I, I have life in his name, that life is because I trust him and not myself anymore. I forsake my efforts to be right with God on my own, and instead I trust that Jesus will lead me to be right. That if I follow him, I will please my God. So believing has to do with trusting Jesus. And the third thing I would say about belief is that believing has to do with ongoing allegiance. That belief is not a one-time act. Where we say, you know what, I put my faith in Jesus long ago, and that was it. I believed, past tense. Instead, these people in the New Testament are defined by their faith. They are believers. It is who they are. And belief implies that we're going to do more than a one-time act. We're going to continue in that faith. So, 
For example, in one of the most well-known passages about faith in the Bible, where Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The context is in the same context in which Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he'll not see the kingdom of God. Becoming a new person, completely new, born again, an ongoing lifestyle change. Faith is more than a one-time assent. In fact, when we believe something about someone's identity and we learn and decide to trust them, That has implications about whether we will be loyal to them. I want you to think about this for just a second with me. This is Luke 20 and verse 5. Let me set the stage here for this text. So in Luke 20, the leaders of the the chief priests and leaders of the temple approach Jesus, challenging him about the authority he used to cleanse the temple. And Jesus says, I'll tell you my authority if you answer me a question. He says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And you remember they get in a little huddle. I guess I always picture it as a huddle. I don't know if they actually huddled. Maybe that's an American thing. I don't know. But they decide, well, we're going to have to say, well, what if we say this? And so they discussed it with one another. Luke 25 says, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? I don't think that they are saying, why did you not have any opinions about John's identity? They're saying, if you knew he was from God, then why aren't you still his disciples? Why didn't you listen to his sermons, obey what he said, and follow him? Why didn't you believe him? But you notice what is implied by this statement that even these chief priests understood. That when you believe in someone, there's an ongoing allegiance that's expected. That's also the case in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10 and verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We go forward, we continue, because we are in an allegiance relationship. One scholar has suggested that the idea of faith in this sense is the idea we would communicate by the word fidelity or faithfulness. That we don't just say, I believe these facts but we instead say, I am going to serve this Messiah. I pledge allegiance to Jesus. So, now we can understand the many passages in which we are told that faith is connected with salvation. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. So when people are told to believe in Jesus and be saved, they are being challenged to decide what they believe about the identity of Jesus. They are challenged to trust Jesus, and they are challenged to pledge allegiance to Jesus. In Acts chapter 16, you have Paul and Silas talking to the Philippian jailer. In Acts 16 and verse 30, it says, He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into this house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. 
Notice that when he asked the question, just like our question back in Acts 2, what, what shall we do? He asked the question, what shall I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. He needs to understand primarily, first of all, that salvation is in Jesus, not in himself. And he then needs to say, I believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, God's Savior, and that I am going to trust him and that I will pledge allegiance to him. We could go on and on with this. There are many passages that address this same issue and talk about the link between belief and salvation. But let's suffice it to say that we must believe in Jesus to be saved. Second, we have to repent of sins against God. Repentance is the idea of turning around. Repentance is a resolution that I am no longer going to live the way I have lived in the past. And I am going to change who I am, to be in line with the allegiance I have made to Jesus. And that commitment is part of what we do to become a Christian. So you have this man, the jailer, that we're open to here in Acts 16. The jailer is not told to repent. You don't have that anywhere in the text, but he does. I know that because of verse 33. In Acts 16 and verse 33, it says, He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. There's a little detail in that story we don't talk about very often. It says he washed their wounds. Do you remember why Paul and Silas had wounds? It was because they had been beaten for preaching the gospel in the city of Philippi. And this man, this jailer, had been a part of Paul and Silas being punished, though they had done nothing wrong. And washing their wounds is declaring in a dramatic way that this man is no longer opposed to them and the message they're preaching. He is trying to make it right. He has changed. And here is just the beginning. Just in some way he is saying, I have respect for you and the work you're doing, and I am sorry for what has happened to you. He washed their wounds, and he and his household were baptized. Let's go back to where we started in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you have a very clear statement from Peter here that indicates repentance needs to occur before one is saved. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Acts 2, 38, and Peter said to them, this is after they've asked the question, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, he says. And remember, Peter is talking to some of the very people who had killed Jesus. They need to stop rejecting God and God's actions through Jesus. They need to submit to the Messiah. They need to change their lives. And the important part about that is that repentance is a one-time decision that then branches out into the rest of life. Repentance is something we decide now but we're going to continue to practice as life goes on. So I have sinned against God, and I'm done sinning against God. I want to live a new life. I want to be forgiven and cleansed. And there are going to be times in the future where I may discover that I have sinned against God. And even now I am saying when that time comes, I'm going to turn back to God. I will repent again and again and again of all my sins against God because I do not want to live hostile to God anymore. 
That's the life I used to have. That changed heart is essential to becoming a Christian. In fact, it is so integral that sometimes it is put for the whole of our response to God. Like in this passage in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants everybody to repent. He commands all men everywhere, Acts 17.30, to repent. Well, is that all God wants? Just stop doing wrong? Well, no, there's, there's faith in Jesus. There's a whole different standard. There is the, the fruit of the Spirit born in their lives. But, but repentance just stands for all of that. That what God wants is for people to change and to live for Him instead of for themselves. So what does repentance involve? Repentance involves the conviction that what I've done is wrong. I need to believe that I, am, I have sinned and I am guilty. Now sometimes, depending on what instances you're looking at in the Bible, sometimes that's a specific sin, like crucifying Jesus, like Simon the sorcerer asking for the, offering money to get the gift of laying on hands and giving the Holy Spirit. But sometimes that's just repentance of a general pattern of life that I'm giving up. But I must be convicted that what I have done is wrong. And then repentance involves sorrow for our sin. I am sorry. I regret it. Paul calls this godly sorrow. The idea is that we're ashamed of what we've done and we're willing to do whatever it takes to make it right to the best of our ability. And then repentance involves the resolution that I will change. Jesus will cleanse me so that I am no longer the person I used to be. I'm a new creature in Christ. And I am going to live different from this moment forward. So he says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, Such were some of you, having described all the awful kinds of people that will not be a part of the kingdom of God. He says, such were some of you. And we could say, as the Fairview Park Church, such were some of us. This is who we used to be too. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Such were some of you because you have changed and you have been cleansed and you have repented of your sins. I want to say about repentance, before I leave this, that it's going to look different for every one of us. Because we all have different struggles and sins that we've committed and different things we need to put behind us. But... The non-negotiable part of repentance is the part that says, I will respond to God and always do what God says from now on. So we might need some help figuring out just what exactly I need to leave behind. But the commitment is the essential part. I will always change from now on to please Jesus, including the change I make when I become a disciple of Jesus. And the third thing, in answer to this question, what shall we do, is be baptized to have sins removed. Somehow, this is the most controversial part of this lesson, even though it is the easiest part of the lesson. It's kind of an ironic thing. Compared to putting faith in Jesus and repenting of sins, being baptized is a piece of cake. Doesn't take hardly any time. Just need to get some water together. But somehow this has become a, a controversial type of topic. So I want to take just a minute and review some of the evidence for this and look at some of these passages and then draw the conclusions that we need to draw. 
First of all, let's look here. We're open to Acts chapter 2. Let's look in Acts 2 and verse 38. Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Peter specifies what baptism does, what's going to happen when they do it, what it is for. Purpose does matter. People get baptized for lots of reasons. Sometimes people get baptized or at least sprinkled with water when they're babies. And it's not really their choice. It's something that their parents or or someone in the family decides for them. Sometimes people get baptized because all their friends are doing it or they feel pressured into it. Sometimes people do it just because they feel like they're already right and they feel like it's something that's good to do. Peter says, be baptized for the remission of sins. I always tell the story... I don't know if I've told it here. Probably. Y'all have heard most of my stories now. I have two older brothers. And when we go swim, we would go swimming in the pool. Of course, you have to play the baptism game, which is basically them dunking me because I was the smallest. But they would say, and I, I guess this might be considered sacrilegious. I'm not intending it to be sacrilegious, but it is what we did. They'd say, I now baptize you, and they would dunk me. And they would dunk me, and they would dunk me. And I I wasn't always compliant. Sometimes I was resistant, but I usually went under. (laughs) The question is, is that that fine? You know, well, I was baptized back in, in the pool with my brothers many years ago. Well, purpose matters, doesn't it? Why are we doing something? Does this have to do with God? Does it have to do with being right with God? And when Peter gives a purpose, that's a purpose that I feel like we have to contend for. Peter says it's for the remission of sins. So I have to say that what baptism is for is the remission of sins. And that purpose changes things, just like our brother talked about at the table. The things that we do and the reasons we do them matter. So I do believe that we need to say that baptism, to have sins removed, is what is described as the purpose of baptism in the New Testament. Let's go to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. This is where Paul is describing his conversion, where Ananias comes to him. Acts 22 and verse 16, Ananias says to him, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Rise and be baptized, he says, and wash away your sins because... Paul was baptized to have his sins washed away or removed. It was not, well, if you ever get around to it, someday you might want to get baptized. It was not even, you can be baptized as an outward manifestation of an inward faith. He says specifically, wash away your sins. So baptism to have sins removed is consistent in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 22. Before he was baptized, he had sins. After he was baptized, he did not. Those bapti- baptism washed away his sins. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Romans 6 and verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul argues that we were baptized into his death. Paul argues that baptism is where we die to sin. That old man is crucified. Our slavery is ended. Baptism then is an essential part of the salvation process. We must be baptized or else we don't die to sin. That old man is not crucified and buried. Our slavery is not ended. Galatians 3 and verse 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Notice he talks about we are sons of God through faith. But he also talks about we have put on Christ when we are baptized. The image there is of putting on a suit of clothes. We put him on as we are baptized into him. This is Colossians 2 and verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You can see the connections to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus all throughout the teaching on baptism. But specifically, he says, we are raised through faith in the working of God. Very often people will argue that baptism is not essential because it's a work we do. Whereas Paul says, no, Baptism is about having faith in the work God does. The work God did in raising Jesus up and the work God does in cleansing us through the blood of Jesus. That work is what we have faith in and we act on that faith when we are baptized, buried with Him in baptism. I want to look at one more passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. I appreciate your patience this morning and following along on a very important idea and topic. In 1 Peter 3... Peter has been talking about how Noah was saved through water and the connection between salvation and water, which he says is a type of what happens in baptism or a prefigure of what water baptism does for us. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter describes what baptism is. What does it do? What's going on when we're baptized? And he says specifically, it is not a removal of dirt from the body. It's not a bath. But what is it, he says? It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is where we ask God to cleanse us, to make us right, to make us whole. We ask for forgiveness. So just like in Acts 2.38... Baptism is for the remission of sins. Baptism is to wash away sins. Baptism is where we die to sin. We are buried with Him. We are raised to walk in new life. The power of the resurrection raises us up. Baptism, in Peter's words, now saves you. Baptism is where we ask God to cleanse us. I can see no other way to understand the function of baptism than to say that we are baptized to have our sins removed. And that means that I have an issue when people teach that baptism is not essential because it is very clearly said to be essential in all of these passages in the New Testament. 
And I can say without reservation that baptism is one of the entrance requirements to being right with God. Now, God might decide that someone could be right with him without being baptized. That's certainly God's prerogative. God is God. I'm not God. But I can't decide that for him. And I can't act as though God hasn't said what he said. I have to say what God says. So, believing in Jesus as God's Messiah, repenting of our sins against God, and being baptized to have our sins removed, these are the things we do to be right with God. Now, certainly, it should be a faith that we're willing to confess before others. Certainly, we need to understand that all of these things are a beginning and not an ending. A beginning of a life in Christ and not an ending. But I think one of the most powerful things that we can say about what we've talked about this morning is that they all flow together. When the heart is right, we want to believe in Jesus. We want to trust Him and we want to declare allegiance to Him and we want to change our lives. And if He says to be baptized and have our sins washed away, we want to do what He says. And it begins a life in which we will happily trust and obey the Lord. These things are a beginning and not an ending. They are a time in which sins are forgiven, in which there is new hope, in which God begins His work in us, in which the Spirit works in us as we obey Jesus, in which we grow and learn and change and become more like the one we're following, all in anticipation of the time when the King comes back. And we live with him in eternity. That is the story that God has been unfolding from the beginning of time, really before the beginning of time. And it is your story too. It is all of our story. So what shall we do? There might be someone here this morning who is ready, based on what we've thought about and studied this morning, based on your own conviction, that it's time for you to make a change in your life and to do those things that we've talked about to become a Christian. At this time, we offer the invitation of the Lord. Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.